Good morning, all. Welcome to Coffee with Jim, podcasts with inspiring, influential healthcare leaders. What a great privilege and honor it is to have with us today an incredibly accomplished, beloved, respected leader, Dr. Irene Masick, Associate Executive Director, Patient Care Services and Chief Nursing Officer, North Shore University Hospital, part of Northwell Health. Irene Masick, PhD, RN, is a nursing leader with 15 years progressive experience at Northwell Health. Prior to that, she had leadership roles at Lenox Hill Hospital, Cohen Children's Medical Center, Stony Brook University Hospital, Huntington Hospital, and many others. Irene has been so gracious in agreeing to have a candid discussion with us about leadership during the pandemic, about social disparities, and our need for connectedness. Irene, so great to have you here with us today. Ah, it's great to be here, Jim. Thanks for having me. Well, it's my pleasure. And before we get to our leadership discussion today, which is titled Reimagining Rejuvenation and Recovery, I just wanted to acknowledge someone that we both knew and worked with together and some great work that we did together. About seven years ago, back in 2014, you and I and Dr. David Rosenberg, may he rest in peace, had you two had this vision as nursing and physician executive leaders to join forces at North Shore University Hospital and focus on great patient experiences for your patients and staff. Do you remember that initiative? I do. As I recall, it was called Experience This. It was a, an interprofessional cohesion project that really got incredible um, traction in the building and really had started creating relationships that I think still live on today. Well, that was great. And I love the title of the initiative because it just reflected the two of you. It's like, we're going right at it and we're going to be in your face. <laughs> And over 100 providers took part in that engagement, and we saw not only HCAP scores go up, but more positive patient feedback and more camaraderie amongst staff. And uh, again, grateful to you and David for this tabletop symbol of recognition that I'm holding up and that sits on my mantle. And it reads, deepest appreciation presented to James McKenna. Thank you for your partnership in improving the patient experience at North Shore University Hospital. And I say thank you for you two for having that vision and for in including me on that journey. Yeah, we were fortunate to have you on the team, Jim. Well, you're very kind, Irene. And so, yes, you're a clinician leader with a long list of successes. In addition, by day and by night, you're also a wife, a mom to lovely kids, a friend, an aunt, and more. I mean, you mentioned right there, my family, um, I was fortunate enough to become twice over a grandmother to Harper Sophia and Desmond Lewis in the last 12 months. And so I am so fortunate that we're able to be together. I can hold them and smother them with kisses. I'm so grateful to be back with my family, to see them in person instead of the Zoom meetings. And more than anything, I love that I can go back out to dinner, albeit I'm still outdoors. I'm not comfortable indoors, but I do like to be able to go and sit by the waterside and you know watch the boats and have a nice meal with my husband. Oh, well, that's excellent. I'm sure you're going to be, you are a wonderful grandma. I hope to see some photos of Harper and Desmond sometime soon. So please send those <laughs> along. Well, Irene, let's turn back the clock to last year year's most acute pandemic moment for you in New York City. It was about May 2020. What were some of the toughest things that you and your team faced then? Yeah, it was a really rough time. At the time I was, as you mentioned, Lenox Hill Hospital, I was the chief nursing officer at our Manhattan tertiary care facility. 
And right in the middle of March, the city shut down and, uh, you know, the mandates were all put in place. So we saw exponential growth of COVID population in our hospital. Every day, we were opening up new units. By May, we were at our peak and actually starting to plateau. And we were seeing that we had every potential bed in the building was occupied with COVID patients. Every available space, not just beds, were converted conference spaces. You know, we worked with the Navy and the comfort came over the USS Comfort, and we set up, we helped them set up their model of care. We work with the Javits Center to bring patients over there. And the city emptied out. It was a ghost town. It was not uncommon to walk through Times Square and not encounter a car, not encounter a person. Imagine walking into Central Park, that beautiful park that you see a flurry of activity, completely void of people in springtime when flowers were, were blooming, to see buildings boarded up, restaurants closed, bars non-existent. It was quite an enormous stressor to the world and a shock to the system, quite honestly. It was, uh, it was quite a time, something that I will not soon forget. Yeah, you paint so many vivid images. Well, interesting enough, you know, amongst it all, so many people were isolated from friends and family, myself included. You know, I was supposed to have switched jobs and come out to Long Island. And I was told three days before, great news, you, you're not leaving yet. And I had to stay in a hotel for four months so I could be close to what was going on. So I literally segregated from my family, stayed in Manhattan full time connected with my family via Zoom. It's so interesting is this past May, we were, you know, nurse, uh, Mother's Day, I had all my family over and we were talking and laughing like we always did. And somebody said, gee, what did we do last year for Mother's Day? And, you know, none of us really could remember when finally my son chimed in and said, oh, you remember we did an hour Zoom meeting at 7 p.m. So that, you know, when you think about 2020, I think we can all summarize it up with a, with a virtual something to connect with friends and family. When you told me that story once before, you also mentioned, right, my hotel distress. Probably not easy for you to have been cloistered away like that, Irene. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I wasn't at home with my kitchen and my food. So it was fast food every night. And, you know, living in isolation in a hotel, just going back and forth to work. And when I wasn't at work, I was on um, meetings virtually with the team, just talking about what's going to be our next move, because we always wanted to stay one step ahead of this. Let's build on that. And obviously, one of the sad things was obviously people passed during that time. And I know some of those people were very close to you. Some of those people were staff. Can you tell us a little bit more about that period of time and or maybe the, the grieving process then? Yeah, you know, we didn't know what we were up against. This was an unknown virus that we were reading overseas was causing a lot of death. And we were starting to see our patients passing away. We saw there was a backup backlog in the morgues and we had to bring in extra refrigeration trucks for that reason. And then all of a sudden our team members started getting sick. And I recall one particular day when we were in our command center and one of the department heads came down and said, we just lost a team member. And I remember that unbelievably awesome feeling of dread and grief to know that even though we were doing so much to try to protect, someone on our own team had succumbed to the virus and had passed away. It was a very sombering moment, one that um, I won't soon forget, quite honestly. That also, if I recall, highlighted some of the challenges and let's say disparities, the social determinants of care. Tell us what makes the disparities issue important to you. Yeah, I mean, 
The one thing that we did notice is that there were definitely certain neighborhoods and certain zip codes that were getting sicker from the virus and was spreading through those areas more rapidly. When we started to notice it, it was areas where there were multiple families living in certain dwellings where uh, loved ones were essential workers working in sanitation and the food industry, in the transportation industry, in the public sector. And these people were experiencing a larger rate of infections in their area. And when we started to really look at it closely, we realized these were also communities that didn't have the same access to care that we saw across the board that may have had some food insecurities and maybe lack of knowledge about healthcare behaviors. And so they got sick and got sicker from the COVID virus. And we saw them in large numbers in our organization, which undercovered a, a public health crisis in my mind that we now need to look at and address so that the next crisis that comes our way, we're on top of it. When we had the pleasure to work together, I know many said about you that you are an empathetic leader, an inclusive leader, collaborative leader. So again, reflecting on your comments about the community and obviously why this is important to you, I recall you telling me a story also, you were required to be a different type of leader during that time too. Can you tell us a little bit more about that nimbleness, let's say? You know, I always prided myself in being that transformational, authentic leader that somebody that people saw and I understood and I, I led through consensus and, you know, professional governance was my mantra. And when we really started to see this wave of sickness come into our buildings, it became very, very clear that a different style of leadership was required, not just of me, but of my key partners in the executive suite. And so many of us had to very quickly turn from what was that authentic transformational leader into the autocratic leader, one that sees an opportunity, rapidly implements an action plan, and then I guess hope that it worked out well. And if not, we'll just change courses the next time. But we had to very, very quickly um, see opportunities and execute in a way that we never thought before. Well, so now we're a year on and we're looking back. Of course, we're facing another potential surge in the fall. What have we learned? What did you learn from these moments? All through the, the first wave and certainly the second wave and potentially the third wave, it became very, very clear that as leaders, we needed to do mental health gauges. We needed to get out and you know look our team members in the eyes, ask them individually if they're okay. You may be okay today and you may not be okay tomorrow. We all go through the, the stages of stress and grieving at, in different phases. And so people who are you know triumphant today might be real desolate and down and out later later on. And so I've learned that I really do need to not just once, not just one initiative and not just one declarative, but regular and often touch base with my team members, ask them if they're okay. And if they show signs of distress, feed them into some of the things that can help them get through this. I know you touched on helping to recognize PTSD. You talked about some of the heroism to get you through it. Also, 7 p.m. became a key moment in the day. Can you tell us more about that? I think the most important thing, and we, we learn this and we talk about it often now, is leading with optimism. And so when you think back in the early days when we didn't know what we were dealing with and patients were coming in through our emergency room, we were rapidly intubating, proning them and sending up into the ICU. And you saw the refrigeration trucks outside. And, and the perception was people get this sickness and they die. And my emergency room teams were probably the most impacted by that image. I recall um, one particular nurse who had been in the ED for a number of times 
and she had just intubated and proned and sent a patient up to the ICU. She was from my float team. Three days later, she was up in the critical care unit floating up there as well. And she was caring for a patient that lo and behold, she had been caring for three days before in the emergency room where they had just, you know, intubated and proned and sent him up to the ICU. And this particular day, he was weaned off his ventilator. He was extubated. He was very raspily talking to the team, and he was transferred to the step-down unit to be with his wife, who happened to be a patient as well. And this nurse thought, oh, my God, people get better from this. So she asked if she could go down to the ED, and she huddled up the team. And she says, you remember Mr. Smith the other day that I cared for? Well, lo and behold, he was just extubated today. He's talking. He's reunited with his wife. He's doing great. People do get better from what we do. And that turned into what we now know as the hope puddles and hope puddles became a thing. This nurse then, whenever she would hear of a patient that was extubated in the ICU would huddle up with the ED, showcase the patient and let them know there's hope and people are getting better. People started getting things so much that it translated into um, a song overhead, right? We were playing here comes the sun over the, the, the intercom system. And the first few times people heard it two and three times a day, they rejoiced. Well, let me tell you, people got better and, uh, and so often as we started to progress and knew how to manage these patients that it almost became annoying that we were hearing here comes the sun constantly. But I think, you know, it speaks to the need to be, you know, gracious and gratitude. And every night in Manhattan, if you were to leave just around 7 p.m. And, you know, I didn't know this was happening to my husband came and said one day, you know, why don't you leave? Let me, he came in to see me and he's me walking to the hotel at 655. He's like, you need to get out right now. And we're getting out and we're walking. And all of a sudden he says, he, ma he makes me stop. And people leaned out of their windows with their pots and pans and their noise making and their claps. The entire city reverberated with this sound that happened every single night at seven o'clock. Jim, I kid you not, I was I was wrought with emotion. I my knees started to shake at the enormous amount of gratitude that the community had for healthcare workers. It was probably the single most moment that kept me going at some really critical times in the city. You retelling that story makes me verklempt when I think about that. <laughs> The connections that people needed, even if it was, you know, from afar, in incredible. Love those leadership stories. And obviously, this is why we're calling this discussion reimagining rejuvenation and recovery, things that helped the team get through it. Another comment you told me about CEO Michael Dowling, his servant leadership at the time. Any comments? Yeah people will oftentimes reflect on in your life, you know, describe a great leader. And this is a man who is incredibly authentic and genuine. He knows when to make a decision and when to, to execute. Um, and he advocated not just within the health system in the public health sector, but really in the government level to make sure resources were here, to make sure that healthcare rec workers were recognized, to make sure that plans of care, that obstacles would, were removed so that we can execute new plans of care. He is an enormous leader and a voice for, for everyone, quite honestly. You've shared ways that you helped your team recover, how the team helped itself recover. People were looking out for each other. I think as healthcare workers, people are looking to us to be the leaders in recovery. And so I think that lead and recovery means that, you know, we need to keep an eye out for each other. We need to go back to the governance that makes people feel joy at work, maybe promote creating healthy work environments um, where team is leading the initiatives. Celebrate often. Don't stop doing the things that you did to recognize your people. If there are annual awards you do, have those annual rewards. If you, you give DAISY awards to your nurses, give the DAISY awards to your nurses. Don't let this opportunity go by without taking the time to recognize your folks often because they are 
fabulous. To that point, we remind teams and patients and community, we're here, we're strong, we're ready for what's next, especially in light of Delta coming up. Any message there? Yeah, there is one very, very strong message there. Those of you that are able to get vaccinated, get vaccinated. Because the truth is, Jim, the only way this goes goes away is through vaccination. The more unvaccinated people that are there, albeit you may get sick and mildly so, it allows the virus to mutate. And the more it mutates, the more chance we're all going to get sick from the virus. And so if I can give any public service out there, please get vaccinated. Shots in arms, shots in arms, shots in arms. Yes. And when you get your shot, take it. I couldn't agree more. We're vaccinated and... When my uh, younger daughter is, uh, when there's a vaccine for her, she will too. And so we're kind of coming into our home stretch. You've been great as always, Irene, in telling personal stories. In those tough moments, how vulnerable should a leader be? What if the leader is feeling overwhelmed? What if he or she, uh, should they share moments when they're feeling burned out? I think it's okay for leaders to show vulnerability. I think it's okay for leaders to hold the hand of their colleagues and to oftentimes cry with them. But I think that's got to be balanced with leadership and optimism. Um, The teams need to see leaders come from a position of strength. They follow their leaders. They replicate the actions of their leaders. And so I do think that leaders need to be out there, see the light in all of this and lead from an area of optimism as opposed to doom. For sure. In wrapping up today, you've touched on it a bit. Anything else to add in terms of what's your personal formula for resilience, continued wellness, and or what makes an ideal leader today? You know, I think as leaders, the old adage is take care of yourself. You know, you get an airplane, you fasten your seatbelt, and then that of your family members. So I do think you have to take care of yourself. Eating right, getting plenty of sleep, exercise, pray, meditate, whatever it is that makes you feel grounded and whole, I say do it. Don't wait till tomorrow. Don't put it off because when you're well, you're able to lead from a position of wellness and people will naturally want to follow you. Excellent. Thank you for your pearls. As always, Irene, we appreciate this time that you've given us today. So thanks again. Thanks a lot, Jim. Good to see you. That was Dr. Irene Masick. For access to our full podcast archive, join us at Spotify, Google Podcasts, or jamesmckenna.org.